We are continuing in the book of Mark. We're in Mark chapter 10. We're going to be looking at, the next section we're going to be looking at is verses 32 through 45. We're not going to look at that entire section today. Um, but we're going to look primarily at verses 32 through 34, and then we're going to skip down to the end and look at verse 45 for, to, for a brief minute as well. So Mark chapter 10, we're going to go ahead and read these verses here. Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 32. Now when they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was going before them, and they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. Then he took the twelve aside again and began to tell them the things that would happen to him. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him, and the third day he will rise again. Jumping to verse 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Back in 2006, John Piper wrote the book, 50 Reasons Why Jesus Came to Die. Among those 50 reasons are the following. He came to absorb the wrath of God, to please his heavenly Father, to achieve his own resurrection from the dead, to show the wealth of God's love and grace for sinners, to show his own love for us, for the forgiveness of our sins, to take away our condemnation, to make us holy, blameless, perfect, to give us a clear conscience, to obtain for us all things that are good for us, to heal us from moral and physical sickness, to give eternal life to all who believe on him, to free us from the slavery of sin, to enable us to live for Christ and not ourselves, to make, us, to make his cross the ground of all, all our boasting, to enable us to live by faith in him, to create a people passionate for good works, to unleash the power of God in the gospel, to show the worst evil is meant by God for good. That's just 19. So we're going to look here in Mark 10, verses 32 to 34, and, and touch on verse 35, and we're going to see part of why Christ came. Part of it was that he came to die. As we're going to see, a lot of this, most of this, was prophesied, and he came and fulfilled prophecy. I've titled this, The Servant's Suffering Foretold, not just by himself, not just through Christ's own word that, we, that we're going to look at here, but as we're going to see from the Old Testament as well. So verse first, we're just going to look at verses 32 and the first part of verse 33. We're going to pick up there in Mark 10, verse 32, in the beginning of verse 33. Now, they were on the road again, or on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was going before them, and they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. Then they took the twelve aside again and began to tell them all the things that would happen to him. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed. So, a little bit of context. Here in this section, we see prophecy of the servant. Prophecy of the servant. 
Now, just a reminder of context of where we are. Jesus and the 12 had left Galilee, heading to Jerusalem by way of Samaria and Perea, going on the eastern side of the Jordan. They have crossed the Jordan further north and are likely now uh, about to cross the Jordan again or have uh, crossed the Jordan or will we'll cross it again here leading as they take the road through Jericho to go to Jerusalem. This is immediately following the encounter with the rich young man, the rich young ruler, and the following discussion Jesus had with the 12 there on the road towards Jerusalem. Now, Jesus is mentioned here as being ahead or leading their band down the road. Now, they're likely... This was, they were heading down to Jerusalem for Passover. There were likely other pilgrims on this road. There were other Jews coming down from Galilee that would have taken this route to go down to Jerusalem for Passover. As we were talking about in Sunday school, just like Jews going north to Galilee are going to go around Samaria, if they're going south to Jerusalem, they're going to go around Samaria. So that's what this road is. Okay, they're going south around Samaria, especially to remain clean to go to Jerusalem for Passover. Okay. Now, it's mentioned that Jesus is ahead or leading the, the group down the road. This seems to be an indication of his determination to get to Jerusalem. Mark mentions that they, being the 12, were amazed at Jesus. This is the same word that was used in the previous section with some of his teaching. They were amazed at Jesus, seemingly because he was resolutely heading towards Jerusalem. They may have remembered the other previous predictions from Jesus about his death, and thus seeing this resolute determination to go to Jerusalem, likely in the face of danger, caused their amazement. There may have been other things going on on where the, uh, of, of some more aggression against him from the Pharisees and the chief priests, but they seem to be amazed at how he is determinedly set on going to Jerusalem. Now, Mark also mentions that this group may have been a little larger. Like I said, they were, they were on a road that pilgrims would have taken to Jerusalem coming from Galilee. It's possible that this group was larger than just the 13 of them. There may have been friends and family with them. Uh, Mary may have been with them. Some of the ladies of Galilee that helped support the the ministry may have been with them. Uh, Maybe if Mary was along, maybe Jesus's brothers were somewhere on the road and she just kind of stayed back with Jesus. We don't know, Uh, but it does seem that this is just a larger group than just the 13 of them. And it seems that that this group that was maybe a little bit further behind, maybe they weren't quite up with the 12, maybe they're a little bit further, that they could kind of sense some tension in the air or something going on, and they were afraid. So these may have been others known to Jesus that believed and followed. These may have just been other pilgrims, but there seemed to be, they seem to have sensed some tension from the 12, likely giving a sense of fear to them. Now, we also see here in verse 32 that Jesus may have uh, known, innate, 
just known the tension and the amazement of the 12. He maybe sensed the tension in the situation from the group as they were traveling. But Jesus stops and he calls the 12 aside. He takes them aside and he begins to discuss things with them. He tells them in some detail what is about to happen to him. Now, all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, record this account. Matthew and Mark are very, very similar, while Luke adds a couple other details here and there. Luke actually records, is the only one to record, that Jesus' prediction of his death, excuse me, Oh, sorry. Uh, Matthew and Mark have very similar uh, accounts of what is happening. When Luke gives a very short, detailed uh, um, recording record of just Jesus's prediction of his death, but Luke alone notes that Jesus says that this is in fulfillment of prophecy. In Luke eighteen thirty one. Luke says, and taking the twelve, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. Before he even gets into what, is, what he is going to tell them what is about to happen, he says, we are going to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. Now, we've come across the Son of Man before. Just a reminder, Son of Man is a Messianic title. It comes out of Daniel chapter 7. And it was Jesus' most used, almost favorite title for himself in the Gospels. He, it's you, he uses it about 80 times in the Gospels in referring to himself. So this was a, very, this was a Messianic title. The disciples would have understood this, that... So they would have understood that what was being said of the Son of Man was replying to, to prophecies of the Messiah and that these were going to be accomplished. And then he gives a little more uh, definition to what is about to happen. But since Luke says here that the, the things written by the prophets will be accomplished, we need to kind of see what some of these prophecies are. The Old Testament is full of prophecies concerning the Messiah, concerning Christ, and even the death of Christ, often with great specificity, being very specific about it. The sacrificial system was established by God in Genesis 3:21. It was mandated by God for Israel in Leviticus primarily, and these pointed to a final sacrifice. And this is made very clear by the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 9, 9, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot, be, that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Hebrews 10, 1 to 3, for since the law is about, it has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would not have, otherwise they would not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any con consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. Hebrews 10, jumping down a little further. And by what will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all? And every priest stands daily at his service, 
offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which cannot take which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Psalm 22 graphically described many of the details of Jesus' death on the cross. Even though Israel didn't really know of crucifixion at the time of the writing of that psalm. The psalm opened with the words of Christ. Some of the words of Christ said from the cross in verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Matthew and Mark both record this. Matthew 27 and Mark 15. Psalm 22, verses 6 to 8, detail the scorn and mockery hurled at Jesus. And Luke 23, 35 to 39, is a one example that shows this fulfilled. Psalm 22, verses 14 to 17, describe much of the physical suffering that Jesus endured. Verse 16 says, they have pierced my hands and feet. Such a reference to crucifixion. Psalm 22, beginning in 14, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It has melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. The immediately next verse, verse 18, is incredibly accurate in the prediction that the executioners would divide Jesus' clothes among themselves. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Matthew 27, 35, and when they crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Isaiah 53 that we spent some time in in December looking at Isaiah 53 is one of the greatest known sections of the prophecies of Jesus' life, ministry, death, resurrection, and glory. And there are many other passages in the Old Testament that prophesy the numerous details of Jesus' ministry, including the triumphal entry. Zechariah 9, we see it in Matthew 21, 4 and 5. The desertion of his friend, Zechariah 13, 7. Matthew 26, 31. The betrayal for 30 pieces of silver, Zechariah 11, verse 12, Matthew 26, 15. Being lifted up, a reference to crucifixion. We can see, uh, we get this reference primarily from uh, Numbers 21, verses 8 to 9, which Christ links to himself and the Son of Man in John 3, 14. No broken bones, Exodus 12, 46, Psalm 34, 20, Matthew 26, 15. Given vinegar or sour wine to drink. Psalm 69, verse 21. Matthew 27, 34. The piercing of his side. Zechariah 12, 10. John 19, 34 and 37. They would have, that he would have received the burial with crucified criminals, yet he was buried in a rich man's tomb. Isaiah 53, verse 9. Matthew 27, 57 to 60. Being raised victorious over death, Psalm 16, verse 10, Acts 2, 25 to 31. Ascended to a place of honor at the right hand of the Father, Psalm 110, verse 1, Acts 2, 34 to 35. 
MacArthur comments here, Jesus was determined to go to Jerusalem, Luke 9, 51, to fulfill all the Old Testament pre predicted concerning his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. He was determined to go. He set his face towards Jerusalem to fulfill all that the Old Testament predicted. Now, as we go back to our main text here, Mark 10, Jesus gives some specific details to the 12 here, picking up in verse 34 or 33. He says, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him. And the third day he will rise again. So we see in these two verses, the second part of verse 33 and verse 34, we see specific details from the servant. Specific details from the servant. Jesus points out several things that are going to happen to him very soon with eight future tense verbs. And we're going to get into the grammar here, but there are eight verbs in the future tense showing that they are going to happen. We're going to Jerusalem, and this is what's going to happen. And there's eight verbs that are used. First, he says that the Son of Man will be betrayed. He will be delivered over. The word that is used here is used in the sense of turning someone over to, into custody. It's the same one that was used uh, in Jesus' previous prediction of his death back in Mark 9, verse 31. Jesus specifically said here that he would be betrayed to the chief priests and, scribe, and scribes. This is a reference to the Sanhedrin, to the highest authority the Jewish people had at the time. This group would issue a final verdict concerning the Jewish law. Their decisions affected political, religious, and social issues for the people of Israel. More or less, they govern, Israel governed themselves under the rule of Rome, and the Sanhedrin was that highest authority. Now, there were smaller councils in other towns, but the main Sanhedrin was found in Jerusalem. Now, this betrayal was fulfilled. Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Matthew 26, verses 14 to 16 and 47 to 50. Once in the hands of the chief priests and scribes, he would be condemned to death by them. And they will condemn him to death. Jesus specifically says that this body, essentially the ruling class of the Jews, would call for his death. And this is fulfilled in the, in the trial before the Sanhedrin. He was taken to the Sanhedrin for trial where he was condemned for blasphemy. Matthew 20, 26, verses 57 to 60. Which is ironic because they were guilty of blasphemy against Jesus. This body, having condemned him to death, would then deliver to the Gentiles, deliver to the Romans. Now, because blasphemy called was a capital offense demanding the death penalty, the Sanhedrin would have to have received 
consent from the Roman governors, from the Romans go Roman governor. And for, the G for Jesus to tell the disciples this, that, the, that he would be delivered over to the Gentiles, likely added another level of dread. Then they understood that for Jesus to be delivered over to the Gentiles certainly meant the Roman authorities. Now, they, the Sanhedrin had control over certain things, and oftentimes, if even on capital punishment cases, they often would receive consent concerning the death penalty. But they hand him over, deliver him to the Gentiles for the death penalty. This was fulfilled following the, the farce of a trial by the Sanhedrin, Jesus was taken to Pontius Pilate. This led to a series of trials, interviews, before Gentile rulers. Pilate, who then sent him to Herod Antipas, who sent him back to Pilate. Luke 23, 1-11. Once in the hands of the Gentiles, he was going to be mocked. He was going to be made fun of, ridiculed, and mistreated. And they will spit on him. Part of, mocking, part of the mocking and mistreatment Jesus underwent was being spit at and spit upon. Both of these are fulfilled. We see this in all of the Gospels. Matthew 26, 67 to 68. 27, 27 to 31. Luke 22, verse 63 and 23, verse 11. There was further mocking at the crucifixion itself with the offering of sour wine and calling for him to save himself. Luke 23, 35 to 37. The Gentiles would scourge or flog him. Part of the Roman sentence of death was the flogging with a short whip that had metal balls or bone shards embedded in the ends. But this was generally held until after the sentence of death was handed down. So it seems, it seems a little strange for Pilate to make the offer of having Jesus flogged before he gave the sentence. Likely, Pilate was trying to soften the crowd a little bit. He didn't want to condemn Jesus. He said, I'm finding nothing wrong with him. What do you want me to do with him? Two different times, he says, let me... I'll, I'll take him, I'll punish him, I'll have him flogged and release him. They were try he was trying to soften the crowd up a little bit. And we see that this is mentioned. We see this in Luke 23, 16 and 22. And in John 19, 1, it very specifically says he had Jesus flogged. The, the whipping, the flogging usually was reserved for... Oh, excuse me, I'm jumping. Um, I'm getting ahead of myself, I'm sorry. Um, so he, he, he had him flogged before, uh, before the death sentence. Uh, then they were going to kill him. Now, Mark uses a less specific word here. He just uses a word, kill. Matthew uses a more uh, specific word. His account actually says, crucify. 
But the twelve understood that if a Jew was to be executed by the Romans, it would be a crucifixion. And Mark, writing primarily for Gentile or even Roman readers, probably would have understood that as well. Because for a Jew to be executed by the Romans, because especially if he wasn't a Roman citizen, execution would have been crucifixion. And all four Gospels record Jesus' crucifixion. There are some differences between them, but just varying, just slightly varying ones. But we see it in Matthew 27, verses 27 to 54. Mark 15, verses 21 to 39. Luke 23, verses 26 to 47. And John 19, 17 to 37. Jesus gave these enough specifics to let the 12 know what was going to happen. If you've been counting, we've only gone through seven verbs. The eighth one is at the very end of verse 34. And on the third day, you rise again. But Jesus gave them some hope by telling them that his coming resurrection was coming as well as his impending death. This is included in all of Jesus' predictions of his death, Mark 8.31 and 9.31. But unlike the rest of the information, it's never really developed or discussed any further. Now, Mark doesn't include anything about the 12's responses to Jesus' prediction here, but Luke's account ends, with, ends the section with a comment that the disciples didn't fully understand all of what Jesus was saying here likely concerning the resurrection. But they didn't quite comprehend what was going on. Luke 18, verse 34. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. But Jesus' resurrection was also fulfilled. Like the crucifixion, the resurrection is reported in all four Gospels, Matthew 28, Mark 16, Luke 24, and John 20. MacArthur makes a comment here. After his resurrection, he would go back through all the Old Testament prophecies to explain again the predictions with their fulfillment. Luke 24, 26 to 27, verse 32, and verses 44 to 47. It was then that his disciples really understood because he, they had experienced the truth and because he opened their minds to understand Scripture, Luke 24, 45. Now, he's speaking directly about the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, but in that account, Jesus talked them through all the Old Testament prophecies concerning himself about the things that had to happen, his, his sufferings, his death, and the resurrection. This all comes to the fulfilling, to fulfilling of Jesus's purpose. And here, let's jump down to verse 45. Jump down to the end of the section, verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Here in verse 45, we see the servant's purpose. The servant's purpose. 
Why did Jesus come? Why did the Son of Man come? What was his purpose? One author says this verse contains the clearest statement of the object of Christ's coming found in the Gospels. I remember correctly, I believe it was Warren Wearsby that said this verse is a key verse of Mark and essentially gives a rough outline of the book. He came, verse uh, chapter one. He served, verse uh, chapters two through 13, and gave his life a ransom for many, 13 through 16, 14 through 16. But we see what is the purpose, what was the purpose of Jesus's coming? Well, first we see in this verse, it was to serve. Mark's theme of Jesus' life is presenting him as the servant of God. Jesus makes it very clear here that his coming was about serving. And he makes a statement here. He, he makes a statement about his purpose both as a negative and a positive. Jesus didn't come for the purpose of being served, of being ministered to. He did not compel others to serve him. And the expressions of love that, we, that are given, that are offered to Jesus throughout the Gospels, were voluntary. He didn't compel them. But he states it positively as well. He came to serve. His entire ministry was one of serving others. This verse didn't identify the type or kind of service Jesus performed but that his life is characterized with a servant attitude. And as we'll see, Jesus is the example of Christian humility and service. We'll discuss that next week when we look at the rest of the section. But Jesus is the example of Christian humility and service. John 13, 4 and verses 13 to 15. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 and Philippians 2, 7. That's one part of his purpose for coming. But the second half of the verse, to give his life. Jesus' service would culminate with his death. The implication here is that it is a voluntary act on his part, a full self-giving, the giving of his life to the greatest. The giving of his life is the greatest, the supreme gift. Now, what about this word that we have here? And to give his life a ransom for many. The word ransom here means, to, means the release price. Ransom is an appropriate translation. The, but the release price. The, now, this particular word is only used twice in the New Testament. Here, in Mark 10, 45, and in the parallel of Matthew 20, verse 28. There's only two, two times it's used in the New Testament. But the word was used in secular Greek for the purchasing of the freedom of a slave. Here, the word refers to Christ's substitutionary atonement. That is his sacrificial death to purchase the release from bondage sinners that will believe in him. 
The price Christ paid was his life, his blood. This is emphasized with the word translated for. The means in place of, not simply on behalf of. He came to give his life as a ransom in place of many, not simply on behalf of many. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 1, knowing that you were ransomed, different word, but you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Now, some will likely ask the question, to whom was the ransom paid or ransom owed? Some think the answer is Satan, that our souls belong to him. And this thought even goes back even to some of the early church. But that's not what scripture teaches. This ransom was paid directed to God. In his righteousness, it was demanded. In his love, it was provided. It is God's moral law that kept us in bondage. We all have the basics of God's law written on our hearts, Romans 2, 14 and 15. God established the law and the death penalty for disobedience as his holiness required. Thus, sacrifices were given in the Mosaic law for different kinds of sin. But those sacrifices had to be offered again and again. Hebrews 10 that we mentioned before. A once-for-all sacrifice, a once-for-all ransom was needed. One author says what was needed was a man because it was a man who had sinned. But this man would have to be blameless. Only one who was God could satisfy the requirements of a holy God. Jesus Christ satisfied all parts of the law perfectly, Hebrews 10, 14. We can also say that we are redeemed, ransomed from the guilt of sin, which is another form of moral slavery we are all under. Redemption through the blood of Christ works in tandem with justification through faith, thus releasing us from guilt, Romans 3, 24. We can also say that sin itself is seen in the New Testament as having a tyrannical power. Uh, John 8.34, Romans 8.15, Titus 2.14 and 3.3, 1 Peter 1.18. And that Jesus' Jesus's shed blood redeemed or ransomed believers from the tyrannical power of sin. Verse 45 says, and he, to give his life a ransom for many. The many referred to here is an indefinite number. One other point, one other points out that we should not try to limit how many for whom Christ died. It pictures a great multitude affected by the gracious 
act of Jesus's death in place, in place of a ran, as a ransom. So it's not a matter of we shouldn't try to to limit the many to a specific number, but that it's a great multitude is affected and it, th through this by this gracious act of Jesus's death. So what was the servant's purpose? It was coming to serve and service would culminate ultimately in his death and resurrection, which, which is a ransom for many, for many those who will believe. So as we close here today, I invite you again, if you have not accepted Christ as Savior, if you have not repented of your sins to Christ, to God for everything wrong you've ever done, said, or thought, now you is that opportunity. Confess your sins to God, turn to God away from your sins, and express faith in Christ in his death as the payment for your sins. And that his resurrection gives us life. You don't have to come forward. You don't have to walk the aisle. You can do that there in your seat. If you have any questions, you're welcome to talk to me after the service. And if you've made that decision even now, let, let us know. Let's close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word and for what the word has shown us today. that Christ didn't come at just some point for some insignificant reason or minor purpose, but that this was part of a grander plan and, that's, and that you specified many ways throughout the Old Testament of Christ's suffering and his death. And Christ knew these things were coming and we see the fulfillment of these things in the Gospels. And that Christ is our picture of service. But most importantly, he is our savior. Because we have been redeemed, we have been ransomed, we have been bought off the slave market of sin because of his shed blood. His blood was the price. His life was the cost. But his resurrection is the victory. And through his resurrection, his death and resurrection, we have new life. And we are able to stand righteous before you. I pray for those here today who may not have accepted you as Savior yet. I pray that even through this message, they would have a better understanding and would come to know you as Savior. As we close today, Father, help us to keep these truths in mind. Help us to be reinvigorated with the gospel that we would take it out and share it for the work for the harvest is plenty but the workers are few and we pray these things Father in the name of your Son and our Savior Jesus Christ Amen